Child of Neves. 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 Uh, the Portuguese. Okay, cool. We are live on the air, but it's very stupid because we're not live. <laughs> we're not live. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry. Um, well, this is a first, so good afternoon and welcome to the 25th chapter of the Perthian Chronicles. I'm Ryan Morano, and today we have the creative mind behind the new one-act play, Soup. Anna Victoria Neves. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Fluent in at least, least three languages and counting, Anna is a performer, writer, director and filmmaker. Recently, she completed the short film What I Could Have Been as a part of her master degree with the Western Australian uh, Screen Academy. It's about to say WAPA, but the Western Australian Screen Academy. But they're, they're in the same... They're, yeah, they're very close. She was born in Brazil and has been an active member of... Oh, you, you did, though. I did some... once. Once. But could we never, ever credit them? Okay. <laughs> Anna will not only be making her Fringe World Festival debut, but also her theatrical directorial debut in the one-act play Soup. Welcome, Anna. So, to get the... I hate when I say get the ball rolling. I've got to find a new metaphor. So I'll just go with this question. Yep. Who, what, why, Perth? All right. The who. My parents did this to me. The what. Dad worked. Um, actually, it's a pretty funny story, actually. I left Brazil when I was two years old, and we moved to Malaysia for, like, less than a year uh, and then after that, my dad went to work in Angola, and this is during the war, so we couldn't go with him. Um, and my sister, I think, was studying at, I don't know, again, I was three, so I'm not entirely clear on how we got to Perth. But I think my sister was studying here, and mum and I decided to move here, and once, as far as I can remember, went to visit my dad in Angola. Moved around a bunch. But eventually, we came back to Perth, which, to be honest was, I think, one of the best decisions because my parents were like, okay, you need to pick a place where you're going to graduate from high school and go to university. And I was like, yeah, let's, let's, do, let's just stay in Perth. I have friends. And to be honest, ECU was pretty cool. So I was like, I want to go to a place where they've got rainbow walls. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. ECU is definitely a cool place. So you've travelled a bit. You've, a so lot. <clears throat> yeah, a lot. So where have you... So did you go to Angola? We visited once. Um, again, I was about four or five, if that. And like the only things I really remember are small things. I remember I got my favorite Barbie doll from Angola. Um, she had brown hair and was dressed like Madonna, but with like a highlighter yellow outfit. Yeah. But pretty much, yeah, we went there and we had bodyguards, which was pretty cool as well. Wow. Yeah. That's got to be scary. Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm just... I don't think, to be honest, I was such a, like, I was always such a happy child. I don't think it was scary. I was just like, it's an adventure. <laughs> was it, uh, I, I, I'm just like having this image now, you, you like five or six, and you're just like carelessly frog, frolicking in like this wartime area and like a minefield. And it's, it's sort of like, it reminds me of one of those, uh, you know, those cartoon things when the cartoons... They look after the baby. There's like these two yeah. goons that look after the baby, and the baby wanders off, and it almost kills itself. Yeah, but, yeah. But the no, two. No, I totally know what yeah. you mean. Yeah, and somehow classical music is always playing when it's happening. <laughs> no, I totally know what you're talking about. Um, I think that is possibly apt. Other than you know, my parents weren't goons; they were actually quite <laughs> well, lovely. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, uh, the you know carefree frolicking. That sounds about right for my childhood. That's pretty much what I was like. Yeah. Now, we're going to be talking about this a lot throughout the podcast because for advertising. Um, so, Soup. Soup. The play that I'm co-producing with mm -hmm. uh, the wonderful Rebecca Ryan from Deadly Entertainment, um, a true Fringe World Festival veteran. And you have to say Fringe World Festival in all caps, I believe we are contracted to do that. <laughs> okay. Um, Fringe World Festival. Yes. So, um, how did Soup come came to be come to be yeah come to uh, be. <laughs> soup funnily enough soup was actually a uni assignment i was kind of it it does go back a little bit um i was kind of i've been going through this phase the past couple of years where i was sort of wondering where my place was um in terms of what i wanted to do with my future what my career goals were 
And for a little while I tried doing the whole like, oh, I'm going to have a mature job where I will make money. And I tried to become a psych. Um, it's not, not for me as much as I do enjoy talking with people. It's just not for me. Um, but so I was actually, I was in a writing class with the incomparable Marcella Polaine, who actually, like, because I did a poetry class with her, I did creative writing with her. Every single one of her classes were of so much benefit to me personally. So I went and I did this writing for drama class thinking, when I was 12, I wanted to be Tina Fey and I wanted to be a writer. Why am I not going to do it now, right? Because it's sort of this, like, I felt it back when I was 12 and mm. I've known it for a really long time. But there was a small moment, because I actually graduated high school when I was 16. So I had to pick what I wanted to do at uni when I was 16. It was, it's, it's a very big decision to make. I, was, I almost graduated when I was 15, actually, but my parents made me do year nine again because they were like, it'll be too young. And I'm really grateful to that because can you imagine? <laughs> but um, there was just something that kind of happened when I was 16 years old that hit me where I went, oh, I'm only 16. What do I know? I should just pick something else entirely. Like I didn't even think about doing writing or any sort of drama, theater or film um, because for some reason I was like, no, I'm too young to actually know what I want. So I'll just go completely off and do something else. So I finally, I sat down in this class, um, actually recommended to me by my best friend. And this, it was literally in the first class you know where you get like that rundown of what the course is going to be like? and Yeah, yeah. like orientation. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. So she's telling us, you know, here's what we're expecting of you. Here are your assignments. And at one point, and she said the words like, a 30-minute one-act play. It just suddenly hit me. And I was immediately writing down the plot to this, film, uh, to this uh, play in my notebook while she was still talking in the first class. Yeah. The funny thing is, the part that I wrote out first um, in the script was actually, and I don't know why it just hit me to do it like this, um, but we have, we, we have the use of, of uh, text conversation in the play. Hmm. That's actually what I wrote first. Ah. Yeah. Did not know that. Yeah. I actually wrote a text conversation between our main character and each of the other characters uh, before I got into the full play. Ah. Yeah. And I kept Jess as one the same. Wow. Yeah. And then you sort of, so, and then working backwards and forwards yeah. from that. So, from so that, that was really the center point. Yeah. Oh, so that's okay. why uh, there's a lot of moments uh, where each of the characters sort of have this disconnect. Sort of these moments of where you think to yourself, like, who would actually say this to someone to their face? Was because I originally wrote it, so they didn't say it to their face. And then I realized, um, this is a play, and how boring would it be if... You know, it was all done by a text message. Yeah. So I worked, I, I picked the two characters that I thought were kind of like basically the meatiest characters. Yeah. And I brought them to life. And one of the other characters, like Jess's character, the one who still has the text message, I yeah. felt that her brand of, I guess we'll say justice, was best served through the text message. So, yeah. There are four characters to the play. There's mm -hmm. the main character, Chelsea, yep. her older sister, Lisa. Um, Jess yep. uh, and Kim. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious, where did... So you started off with these two characters of... I'm, I assume it wasn't... She wasn't called Chelsea at the time. Actually, um, she was called Lisa. Lisa? Mm -hmm. So where So where did Lisa and Kim come from? Um, so Lisa... Oh, this is going to sound so bad to say. Okay, so... <laughs> oh, at the time... I was watching a lot of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, like a lot yeah. of Keeping Up. And I've got to be honest, like they honestly have no, no idea how money works for people in reality. But when it comes to family, they are an insanely compassionate and connected group of mm. people. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Um, so like they get into each other's personal lives a lot. But I think the episode I was watching was, I don't know, Kim was getting divorced or... No, no, Kim... Yeah, Kim was getting divorced. And um, her, her older sister, who tends to be... Um, Courtney, who tends to be the most pragmatic and logical of the group. Hmm. You've probably seen the meme, the one where Kim's crying. She'd, like, lost an earring 
in mm. the ocean and Courtney's just like, there are people dying. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> she's usually very much like that. Um, and I actually sort of put both of them together. And so like the emotionality, that was emotionality, whatever, that's a word now that was coming from Kim and that like need to connect with someone and yeah. the like, I'm your big sister. Here's what I've got to do. And put them together and created Lisa. So she's still kind of nosy a little. Yeah. But she's she's there for her sister no matter what. Like, that's what sisters do. They, mm. like, I think it's a bond that maybe, be- like, only best friends get close to. Which is that, mm. at least for girls, I'm not sure how it works for guys never having been one. But, um, <laughs> but I know, like, you know, I think just the way gender roles are constructed and the way society expects men to be that sort of connect that women are so lucky to have Mm. men are sort of told not to get close to Mm. I mean I'm not sure but that's sort of I don't know it's sort of what it comes across as and I think that's sort of again like the toxic masculinity thing coming into effect Mm. but when I created these two characters it was meant to be you know she's your sister she loves you you guys have been through a lot together. I mean, no one else knows what it's like to have your parents. And all parents do something. Something that makes you kind of go like, oh my lord, we should probably call Child Protective Services. Um, so obviously the best person to talk to about most things in your life would be your sister. Yeah. And especially in this situation where they are actually quite close. Yeah. No, I'm just sorry. I'm just like really blown away. And it's very good to have this in-depth discussion. And Kim, it's funny. We were, we just had... Re- I don't know when this is going to get released at. Probably in the new year. So happy new year, everyone. Yay. Um, but we had rehearsals the other week. Mm-hmm. And I remember we were doing those interviews. Yep, yep. And, it was, and I wish you were in the room because we'd like, we're talking to the actor, um, Spike, yep. who, who portrays Kim. Isaac, yeah. Isaac. Isaac, Spike... Inverted commas, uh, Powell, uh, and I'll, so we're talking about so we're talking about his character Kim, yeah. and I just love Spike is such a well-spoken Englishman. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. But I just loved it how we're just talking about Kim and how I think a lot of people can relate to Kim. Yeah, yeah. She's a, a very passionate. I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that Kim's name actually was inspired by Kim Kardashian. It was sort of that, like, everyone considers her to be the anti-feminist kind of thing. Mm. So I decided to make her the opposite of what everyone expects. I literally was like, I don't know. I was watching a lot of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. (laughs) (laughs) Who or what influences your artistic work? Oh, gosh. A lot of things influence my artistic work. I think, to be honest, I'm lucky enough to have two extremely creative parents my dad likes to pretend like he's not creative. Mm. Uh, he's a he's a civil engineer, oh. who yeah, who you know, taught me physics when I was six. Um, yeah, <laughs> so no, I was just remembering a time where I had a teacher be like, "What? How do you?" Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, like my dad, he's actually a musician who is extremely talented. There is nothing more frustrating than you know, spending your own money, buying a ukulele, deciding you're going to teach yourself, playing for two years, still not being that good, but you're working on it, right? Like, you're still kind of proud. You know it's not an instrument a lot of people will just play. And then my dad picked up a ukulele, uh, which he'd never touched before, strummed the strings once, and then proceeded to play whatever he wanted. And I was like, cool, 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 cool. That's infuriating, but yay, my dad's really talented. Um, my mom is actually a, an artist. Oh. Um, my mom paints, she has, well, she does anything actually. Um, yeah. she, I like saying my mom paints is the s- smallest part of it, um, but she has all her own incredible artwork and she's really talented, which is incredible. So I've, I've been really blessed to have these two creative influences in my life and I've always had a very open relationship with my parents I don't know if it's because I just like I never went through normal teenage rebellion Mm -hmm. um the amount of my teenage rebellion was getting a tattoo when I was 21 um was not a teenager (laughs) at that point um 
So that was that's sort of where that went. But everything else, I've always been really open with my parents. So, I mean, I'm sure they've heard things they don't want to hear. I'm sure that they've had to sit through quite a few things that they were like, are we meant to know about this? But because of us being open, my mum has this very, very creative mind. She often describes it as thinking in cartoons, where she'll suddenly picture something and like she'll start imagining it as a cartoon and Mm. she'll, you know, oftentimes during lunch at a restaurant, start laughing a lot. <laughs> and um, it's, it's just really funny. Um, and then she'll tell us, you know, why. And, um, you know, we'll just make fun of her a little bit. Poor thing. But no. Um, <laughs> and then we'll just, we'll continue eating. But it's just, it's these little moments of like creative bursts. So yeah. my dad, again, likes to pretend that he's not really creative. Whenever I'm talking to him about any sort of creative thing I'm doing, he'll often be like, have you thought of it like this sometimes it's completely unfounded and I'm like why where no yeah like that makes no sense other times I'm like yeah you know what that's actually a really good idea so I've always had this like nurturing and fostering of my creative abilities and I'm pretty sure like I, one thing I really remember growing up was uh, I'd talk about films and tv and mm. anything a lot to the point where my dad would actually be like so can you talk about real life now which I remember getting really... Because for me, I was like, but this is real life. Like, yeah. this is a thing I've lived now. But I think... And this is a really great moment for me. By going into theatre, going into filmmaking, my dad, I think, at this point, has gone, all of that is worth it because now we've come to this point. Yeah. Like, it's all been for something. But that just goes to show, like, where my, ta- where my passion for it all really started. Um, like, I was in plays growing up. I was the Tin Man in a production of... <laughs> <laughs> of the Wizard of Oz, which was great. I'm pretty sure only the, yeah, only the Cowardly Lion was played by a boy. The rest <laughs> was all girls, except for the wizard. And <laughs> um, so we had a really good time doing that. My only thing is, and I still hold this, I guess, like my arts teacher at the time at, this, at my primary school in Portugal, by the way. Mm. Um, she did the choreography, and for some reason, I still hold it against her that part of the choreography was to make me look constipated. Because <laughs> as the Tin Man, you're rusted and you yeah. have to come back. So it was like the effort of getting back into shape and oiling up my joints. <laughs> um, so I looked constipated. I got made fun of so much for it. Like, I'm over it. But at the same time, it's like, I still remember it. Still remember it, Miss Babs. Still remember it. Um, but no, so yeah. I wanted to talk about language because sure. so for the people at home, I don't know, for the people for the people at home, <laughs> um, our wide international audience because some people actually from oh America, it will be international. I'm sending this to my parents. <laughs> ah, brilliant. Um, language. Yes. See, I love language, and I am very lucky to be in a household where my mum's Spanish, my dad's Italian. Yeah. Um, to be influenced by language, and I'm just curious with you because you were born in Brazil. Yep. You spoke. Brazilian, your first language was Brazilian Portuguese. Yep. You went to Portugal. Uh, Portugal. Um, yeah, I said that right. <laughs> yeah. Um, Portuguese, uh, Spanish. Yep. Do you also speak French? Yeah. See, the, now this is my question to you. Yep. Because I, I, I had this conversation with my Spanish cousins who, who learnt Spanish and then yeah. English. Okay. And I learnt English, English and I know a little bit of Spanish. I'm just curious... Like the alphabet, and when you see, like, like, do you think, ah, do you think in English, or do you think in Portuguese, or? So it does happen, actually, the, so normally I think in English. Um, technically, my first language was English, like, speaking fluently in full sentences was English. I did learn, like, I learned Portuguese first, but when I was two, we moved to Malaysia, I actually learned English off the Disney Channel. So for a really long time, I had a severely American accent, um, which I've worked hard to get rid of. And sometimes it still comes back. (laughs) Yeah, no, if I spend a long amount of time in America, I immediately have this really thick American accent. But anyway, so growing up, my mum would actually say, because we met quite a few people who, like, for example, their families were Italian, but they never Mm. taught them Italian. Yeah. Um or Spanish or Greek even, and just didn't teach them Greek. And so my mum would always say, especially when we moved to Australia, because we were living in a a country that spoke English, Mm. um, and I was so comfortable speaking English, that at home I had to speak Portuguese or I wouldn't get dinner. Wow. 
to be honest, I don't know. I don't think she ever would have actually like upheld that. Oh, yeah. Like, firstly, like my my heritage is uh, on my mum's side, Brazilian, Portuguese, Jewish, and on my dad's side, it's Brazilian, Italian. So, let's be honest. The woman's Portuguese and Jewish. There is no way she wouldn't have fed me. Like she fed the entire neighborhood. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, but anyway, I had never called her bluff. I always spoke Portuguese at home as much as I could. Um, sometimes I'd be tired and I'd say, like, speak in English. She'd be like, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're saying if it's in English. Mm. I'm just waiting now. Um, so I'd say it in Portuguese and it would be all good. But I, I do normally think in English, but there are times, and usually it's after spending a lot of time with my family or going to, yeah, like spending holidays in Portugal or in Brazil where I do come back and it's only once I come back because while I'm still there I do a lot of the time think in English but once I come back it's like my whole world is so overloaded with English that my mind starts thinking in Portuguese again which is hilarious because luckily for myself and my friends we were at a quiz night a couple of weeks ago and one of the questions asked uh, for the word for the back of the neck back of the neck and I could not think of, I was like, I know it in Portuguese. So I turned to the quiz master guy and I was like, hey, I know it in Portuguese. If you stand right here, I'm going to Google translate in front of you. And he was like, okay, yeah, if you think that's, so I'm like showing him. Yeah. And in Portuguese, it's called Nuka. And it Google translated, Nape. And he's like, that's correct. And I was like, I know it is. I just <laughs> couldn't think right. Um, so... Luckily, he let us do that because normally, you know, you're not allowed to have your phones. So yeah. it was a great moment for us <laughs> as a team. Um, so, no, it is, it is sometimes very confusing. Um, anytime I get off the phone with my parents, my closest friends can tell you it's just sometimes I come out with an accent mm. and other times I, yeah, have a hard time getting back into English. <laughs> so. One of my weirdest family quirks is the weirdest thing. When, so my mum's, sorry, they're Spanish. Yeah. It's funny, when I, when my dad and my sister, we visit my mum's parents, uh, we don't speak Spanish, but we put on this sort of Spanish broken English accent. accent? We actually do that. <laughs> so it's, it's really easy to, because yeah. the way Brazilians speak English, I'm going to come off sounding really terrible sometimes, but... It's very recognisable to myself and my family and anyone who mm. comes from Brazil to hear this broken English and the accent that comes with it and be like, that person's Brazilian. So, for example, oftentimes, and I like it weirds out all my friends, is we'll be hanging out and someone will walk over and ask a question or something with an accent and I'll suddenly, in Portuguese, go, so which part of Brazil, uh, Brazil are you from? And, my fr and like they always reply back in Portuguese. Um... So, like, for example, um, I'm trying to think. Oh, oh, so, yeah, Brazilians often say vacuum. vacuum. Not vacuum, vacuum. Um, I'm just trying to think how, like, so I'll, I'll put on the accent. It's very funny. Yeah. Um, it involves a lot of, like, soft Ds and uh, so basically um, I'm going to speak with, with you like this. How how are you today? Uh, no, today. Um, things like that. Yeah. It's just it's very small little quirks, but they're there. So yeah. my parents and I actually do we we make fun of it quite a bit. So sometimes we'll be on the phone and we'll just start talking in this heavily broken English accent. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to know that other people do that too, though. That's really good. What have you been? Sorry, some gibberish. <laughs> And that was a whistle, I think. That was a whistle. And so I have to say, my fucking tummy's grumbling. I don't know why. Fair Nerds. enough. <laughs> What's... So, soup. Soup. What's an important virtue that is needed to direct? Oh, I want to say patience, but I feel like that's cliche. Let's be honest. Of course, you've got to be patient if you want to direct someone. You've got to be patient if you want to lead anyone. Mm. Um... But I think a really important virtue is to be able to connect with people because you don't only have to connect with your actors who are going through quite an emotional thing. They're playing a completely different person. I think we It's my door. Ah. It's my front door. There is a breeze that blows through my front door. 
Um, as soon as anyone opens that, close the door. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so he's ready. So. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you're, you're not only trying to connect with your actors, who are actually, they are, they're playing different people from themselves. So it is an emo- emotional journey for them. But you're trying to connect with the characters. Because if you want to bring them to life, you've got to know them. You've got to be close to them. Mm. And you've got to understand them. So I think a really important thing with being a director is being able to have that relationship and connect and communicate well with your actors, with your characters. Mm. And to be honest, yeah, with your producers, you want to get thing, you want to get it done well. So you've mm. got to like communication is important in general. But yeah, uh, I think my answer is going to be relationships, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> what about writing? Writing is extremely important. One thing I have learned from directing both film and and theater at this point is that funnily enough directing what you've written yourself is great like it's it's an, it's it's really uh what's the word it's a real privilege to be mm. able to do that because you know how it's going to turn out but also in like from my experiences in everything I've directed is I like I've changed things last minute I've decided to change something I've decided to cut something out and from a writer's perspective, from like I like doing it to myself, getting rid of something or putting something in, I like it's a lot easier for me to deal with the fact that someone else would also once I've handed over a script to a director, they have the right to do whatever they want to it, mm. basically. And I actually I really respect what's gonna come out of that. If they respect your work as much as you do to actually want to produce it, you'd hope they respect your work. I think it's important to be able to let it go. So coming from that director's perspective, sorry, coming from that like writer's perspective as a director, I think I'm extremely, one, I'm extremely grateful for writers. Um, mm. I like all the, crea- let's be honest, a lot of the creative work is coming from the writer. Mm. Um, the basis of what you're creating is coming from the writer. Mm. So your understanding of it is, it, it comes from you, but... Mm what your understanding comes from the writer and I think it's really important especially in like in future going forward if I ever get the chance to work with another writer directing their work which I really hope I do (laughs) I would love to uh, actually direct someone else's work other than just my own Um, (laughs) I I think that communication is important that treating them with respect so yeah Mm. that's yeah what do you like about Soup? Okay, it's going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn because I wrote it, but I, I, I just I love the nuance in mm. what's actually happening between these characters. There's a lot of secret little things, little messages, little hints on the surface that, sorry, below the surface that people might not pick up on, um, or people might. Mm. Like there's, it's, it's like some of them are just deep enough that you just might miss it. Other than like others are close enough that you can pick it up and I think it's little nuggets like that that really bring it close to home I also I just love the way these characters relate to each other I think it's so important because personally I like to write mildly realistic things that people can relate to Mm. my film what I could have been uh is possibly one of the most relatable pieces I've ever written I Mm. think a lot of people I know have uh, gotten in touch and actually a couple of people I don't really know very well at all have gotten in touch to be like, have you been in my home? Because this is exactly what it's like. So, uh, no, it was, it, it's, so my, my goal usually when I write is to create something that people can really, really like get behind and can understand from their own personal point of view. Mm. And as much as, Soup does have sort of that divisive subject and that like little topic that many people might not have gone through. I know that no man I know has gone through it, Mm. but the way it's dealt with and the way people react to it is enough, I think, for people to be able to connect with at least some part of what the play is, uh, Mm. is representing. So... Like, even if they connect with the wrong character, <clears throat> Jess. <laughs> um, or, you know, if they... Because some people might genuinely connect with um, the belief that Jess is upholding. Um, other people might... Yeah. Uh, yeah, other people might 
sort of see the hypocrisy of where Kim is coming through or where Lisa's coming from. So there's always some angle that people could connect with. Hmm. People may connect with Chelsea's anxiety or the need that she has to keep the secret. So there's always, always something in there. Hmm. I always thought about what I like about the play. Well, one of the reasons why. Yeah, it's funny that when I first read it and and... I first met Anna by chance in 2017, last, last no, year, wait, 2016. Sorry, 16, sorry. Yeah, yeah last year um, at the ECU Tavern where um, Anna <laughs> manages or managed, managed and she showed me the play. She'd just written it for her um, master's degree of creative bachelor's. writing. Bachelor's degree bachelor's. of creative writing. And the first thing that came to me, well, what I really liked it was the language and the, the, the naturalism and the simplicity of it, mm. uh, but I, 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 but then you simply. I think one of the hardest artistic endeavors that you can aim for is simplicity. Mm. I think that's the hardest thing you can aim for: simplicity. Definitely. But I like how you simply changed the character. So, as some people may or may not know, we we're speaking of there are four female characters, but they are being portrayed by male actors, yep. not in drag but in contemporary manner and style and look. But I, I just find that just so fascinating how using just a, a simple, mm. on the surface, simple change of gender, yep. but, 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 but using that very simple, and I don't want to use that word in an insulting manner, but I'm just saying using that change, okay, you're now, you, you're a male, but you're a woman, mm -hmm. has so many implications about, no, you know, gesture and the scene, yeah. and it just opens up, you know, so much more. No, it really does. Like I know that part of part of what might offend people or part of the controversy that might come out of producing soup, um, especially in having male actors portraying female characters, is that sort of idea that um, you know, if you're writing female characters, why wouldn't you have female actors play them? Mm. If this is a feminist piece, why wouldn't you have females playing them? And honestly, that was while I was writing it, I did know that I was going to be writing it for men. But at the same time, I knew that I was going to have to address for myself as a woman why this was the case. Because I know, I know what it's like to be sort of in this industry where men do have quite a bit more mm. roles than women and are offered a lot more than women. But at the same time, the way I wrote this play is in no way to offend or uh, exclude women. The female characters, the reason I chose to have men portraying female, these specific female characters is because I think by having men playing them and by making not only our actors really think about what their characters, because that's been an incredible, I guess, evolution to see in our actors is their understanding of these female characters and who they're playing. Mm. But knowing that that'll reach other men and women in uh who come to see the play like i it, it was always a concern for me that idea that you know why are you excluding women from participating we're not i mean we have a female producer we have female crew mm. and as far as i like I, i've tried to treat it with so much respect that a big part of it is to really actually shed a light on the hypocrisy mm. of and I know I've said it already, but the hypocrisy of that gen of gender politics and gender roles. Mm. So it has been very well thought out. And I know that it's something that a lot of people will still question. And I completely understand that. And I'm ready to answer all those questions. But it is something that I have worked together with our actors and our team to really produce something we can all be proud of mm. and something that we can all say, I think will stand up to what's coming in the like next few years of political absolutely everything yeah because it's funny now and it's and thank goodness it's happening now how we mm. have you know the whole Weinstein and that really yep. popped so to spe it specifically popped the lid in the sort of arts yeah industry I say arts in the sense but it's really you know movie making and moguls and whatnot and and, yep. and giving light to the the term the casting couch. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and all on on, and we're we're finally getting uh, information about 
you know, what happens. And I definitely think this this obviously has to happen in other industries. This yeah, is not of course, solely no. into the arts. Um, in business, in government, in politics, I'd, I'd find it really, really hard if I was, yeah, in politics. Yeah. I think one thought I had to myself about this, about Soup, the, the play, I really think it's going to bring together the people who are super uber conservative mm. and right, and it's going to bring together the people of the you know left, very far left, yeah, uh, together. I do. I think because of the way it's done, because of the way these characters communicate with each other, um, I think, for example, a an uber conser- conservative person could probably see themselves in Lisa's character, kind of, or they could very likely see themselves in Jess's character. Some might even recognise a little bit of themselves in Kim. Mm. And I think a lot of far-left people <laughs> would also be able to rec- Like, There is a lot there. There's that loving sister, that heavily you know, passionate feminist who is problematic. You know, and because we like that's that is the thing about this play. No one is perfect. Mm. Everyone is broken. Everyone is flawed. Lisa has her own things to deal with, her own flaws. Kim definitely has her own flaws. Jess, my lord, is basically an entire flaw. I feel bad saying that for the actor who has to play her. I'm so sorry, Patrick. Um, but no, he does an incredible, yeah. incredible job as, at portraying her. And I honestly, I think he's having so much fun with this because I was concerned when I first wrote it that Kim was going to come across as a victim. Mm. Not victim, sorry, as the villain. Yes. Kim isn't the villain. No. No. Jess, if anyone, is the villain. But mostly the villain is the pressure that comes from every aspect of society. This play doesn't exactly have a villain. This play doesn't exactly have a hero. But it's got a hero in terms of everyone's the hero of their own story. And... Our character of Chelsea could be anyone, mm. could be everyone, um, as could be any of the other characters. They're all suffering from this notion that they need to conform to what society expects. Mm. So, I'm segueing into some advertising. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so, Soup will be appearing at the Perth Town, the Supper Room at the Perth Town Hall, and that's being presented by. The Lucky Cat. Yep. So it's going to be a wonderful, exciting time. I am so excited, honestly. I've heard of the whistle. Um, <laughs> no. A screaming, scream of joy. <laughs> it is. It's honestly just yay. Um, no, I've heard of the plans that uh, the Lucky Cat have for the Perth Town Hall and everything that's going to be coming in. And honestly, I don't think I'm going to be home much. I'm pretty much planning on spending all my time there. Mm. All the other shows are hilarious and mm. amazing. There's, I'm pretty sure, going to be food trucks. And as someone yes. who likes food, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be there a lot. And they've got merchandise vans. I'm just excited <laughs> the whole time um, for the, uh, as we must say, <coughs> Fringe World Festival. <laughs> what, so what do you like about Perth's Fringe World Festival? What I love about Perth's Fringe World Festival is um, Fringe, honestly, the the whole idea behind Fringe makes me happy. Um, That idea that people on the fringes of society, artists, people from wherever, whoever, can come together to make art and to participate in art and to enjoy art. Like, regardless, you know, if you're making merchandise, if you're making music, like the entire, the arts in general gets celebrated by this festival. And it, it just makes me so happy. Um, it makes me feel so validated in my work. It makes me feel really proud of everything that's coming out of Perth. Because another, like, I, I do, I've heard rumblings that people think that Perth has nothing to offer. Mm. And I know of a lot of people who've come here from over in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane who genuinely come over here and are like, Perth has nothing to offer, and they leave thinking Perth has nothing to offer. And I think those people have really missed out. I Mm. think those people, if they genuinely leave thinking that Perth has nothing to offer, then I don't think they've met the people that Perth has to offer. Mm. Because the amount of talent and creation and chaos that comes out of Perth is fantastic. I've met some... Like ever since I started, I actually started working fringe as a uh, as as managing a bar. <laughs> um, I I managed staff for a bar for a little while, 
um, a pop-up bar that was specifically made for Fringe. And uh, last year I did the Frio Royale on my own, basically. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I did Frio Royale again for the same company, managing it. And um, I met some, like, because people actually, I think what people don't understand, because, you know, with this whole Perth has nothing to offer, mm. there are people who come here from, um, like, LA, yeah. from New York, who, people who come here from London, who bring their shows, people who come here from Edinburgh, who bring their shows to Perth, because they think, one, we have something to offer, two, our, what's the word, our, I guess, audiences would appreciate it. Yeah. And that's something, regardless of whether or not someone is part of the arts in terms of, you know, performing or producing or participating, mm. the audience is participating by being there, like by taking it all in. It's always, every time Fringe ends, there's always so much conversation going on. There's all this conversation about what someone saw in Fringe or what the benefits are of the arts. It's just something that brings in discussion and something that breeds intelligent thoughtful sometimes not so thoughtful but really it doesn't not everything has to be thoughtful conversation it starts something and that is inspiring to me and that's what i love about fringe yeah yes to all that <laughs> why do you write why do i write yeah oh why do i write well i think it started with reading a lot i used to lie to my parents when i was younger and i thought they like knew that i was lying Sorry, no, I, no, sorry. I thought they not knew that I was lying. I thought they fell for my lie. Um, they knew I was lying. It wasn't necessarily a lie. I was like, oh, mom, dad, I'm afraid of the dark. So they would leave my light on next to my bed. And the amount of times my mom found books under my pillows were insane. Sometimes she'd just come into my room about 10 minutes after she put me to bed, stick her hand under my pillow and be like, that's enough now. And grab whatever book was under there. Apparently once she came into my room and there were six books stacked up and my neck was like craned and just like under my pillow. I don't know how I felt, but I was asleep. Yeah. And she was kind of like, how on... Uh, firstly, apparently I thought I was going to get through six books that night. What? Um, I don't know. I was, I was a funny kid. But that's... So I, I read a lot. I read a lot. Um, my grandfather... <laughs> my grandfather actually, he translated War and Peace into Portuguese. Whoa. Um, he spoke seven languages and he was a philosopher, a professor and a writer. Wow. So I think, I mean, let's be honest, it, my writing, my need to write something and to just, I think, convey something through that way. I think it comes from that, to be honest. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've always, always expressed myself through writing, even if it's, I'm one of those people, I like, I make pro-con lists. I make lists of things that need to get done. I just write. Um, I once made a comment. I actually wrote a poem once entirely about how I like looking at my own handwriting in the same way that someone enjoys listening to their own voice. So I think that partially comes from it. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I write. I express. In terms of your artistic career, mm -hmm. looking into the future, mm -hmm. how do you see Perth? I think Perth's, like I was saying before, with the Fringe World Festival, sorry, <laughs> with the Fringe World Festival, I think Perth is only growing in terms of the arts and its appreciation for anything artistic. Whopper is here. Mm. Like, come on. There's, we can't sit here and pretend like Perth doesn't care yeah. about the arts when we have Whopper, we have Wassa. We have so much to offer. Pretty much anyone I know who's a struggling artist here in Perth is willing to put their all, which is pretty much a lot of yeah. everyone I know. Everyone. <laughs> Everybody. Um, no, I have friends who aren't struggling artists. Some of them are engineers. Oh, <laughs> they're the smart ones. Yeah, the, you know, others are trying to be doctors. There are some people who went into STEM. Um, but no, my, so a lot of my friends who are struggling artists in Perth, I admire every single one of them because they are so passionate to make whatever project they're working on the best it can be. Mm. And I think that's a great thing that comes from sort of being the underdog is you have this drive to do the best and to be the best mm. that maybe someone who has unlimited resources doesn't need to work so hard for doesn't need the drive because anything they do is already going to be the best. It just happens. Whereas here in Perth, everyone feels that they need to come together to make it happen. And I love that. Mm. Do you also feel like the 
the idea of Perth is like an isolated city helps? It does. It does. Um, I feel like that idea, you know, Perth, Perth's an isolated city. Australia is an isolated country, but mostly Perth being isolated from the entire country actually really helps in terms that for us as a, as a city, for us as an artistic community to communicate with the rest of the world to express ourselves to the rest of the world, we really, really need to push. Mm. We really need to get past sort of that mediocre standing that a lot of people are at mm. to be noticed, to be the best. It's great, honestly. The diversity of works that comes out of Perth is honestly spectacular. What do you like about filmmaking? Oh, I like so many things about filmmaking. One thing I don't like about filmmaking is uh, a joke that I make a lot in theater rehe- like in theater rehearsals. Uh, is that oftentimes when I'm trying to help an, an actor calm down um, if they're feeling a little bit flustered after getting a line wrong, or I often yell out just, "We'll fix it in post." Because you can't. That's the joke. In theatre, you can't fix it in a post. It has to be perfect. It's live. Um, can't do that in filmmaking. Bad thing to say to actors. <laughs> so I sort of, anytime, I sort of have to like, it's a little switch that I have to flick whenever I go into, onto a set is like, never, ever say that. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I love filmmaking. Just that, that idea that so much can be conveyed, can be conveyed through such small changes in detail. Mm. Like the angle of a camera, the lighting in a room, the colour of an outfit, like these small, small mm. things that like they do overlap when it comes to theatre, but often they aren't as noticed or as recognised because in theatre you can't just hit rewind and go again. You know, I think something very important about film is it's there for good. When it comes to theatre, the writing, the script, that's there for good. But the production and the presentation of it, it's there when you see it. And so it's got to be memorable. It's got to be completely, wholeheartedly... Uh, what's the word? <laughs> completely and wholeheartedly... Uh, <laughs> oh my lord. Uh, touching, basically. Yeah. Um, it's got to hit the audience. The same way film does, but in film, there's so much that goes into it. The editing process, the way you cut, when to cut into a different angle or a different scene is just unlimited. I love that. Yeah. The options are always there. And in general, film, like in general, making art just makes me happy. I'm one of those people. I could sit here and talk about it for hours on end. No, but I, I absolutely love filmmaking. I adore it. Working with actors. I just, I, that's another thing. It goes into theatre as well. I just love working with actors. Honestly, they are incredible people. The things they have to go through to become these characters that you expect of them. It's not small. Even, and I know that there's a lot of people who, who criticise the idea behind method acting. Yeah. But even people who don't method act. Just getting into character is hard. Y- yeah. So, I think that's something people need to appreciate um, a lot. I just love the notion of um, how... How the, the public, the audience, um, the rabble, no, yeah. <laughs> um, how they perceive, uh, you know, you, you, I love these, see, this is why I'm a big fan of like these old British actors like uh, Sir John Gilgood and Laurence Olivier mm. and Ralph Richards and these yes. old, old timey um, actors. And I love how you get the sense of be over theatrical when they say, oh, I'll, I'll just, um, I'll put a wig on and lots of makeup and, and um, you know, do something and, you know, see how it goes. <laughs> but then... <laughs> <laughs> and I just love it. I remember I saw this this sort of well-known director <laughs> directing. Uh, this was part of a master workshop. <laughs> I love how direct this this particular well-known director. He he worked with Hugh Jackman. Um, he <laughs> he he really got involved in the performance with oh, the yeah. actor, and it's like he was almost there. See, I love how like. Like, I know it's like typical in rehearsals where you've got, like I said, the actors doing the bit and the director and the stage manager and all the, the crew sit back behind a desk. Mm. But he's this type of director who gets up and he stands and he's like within the muck of the scene. He's there. Yep. And I just love this. I'm, I'm just this flashback of this guy, you know, he's really empathy. He's really mm. empathizing. And, and, he, and it's like a you know, dramatic scene. And it, I think it was Lady Macbeth. Scene, she's rubbing out the spot, and 
and he's going, yes, feel the spot. <laughs> feel the spot. Yes, Rob, that was beautiful. Yeah, I, I love that, 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 yeah. over, you know? Um, That's actually kind of what I'm like when I do film because mm. with film I'm like that's the great thing is you direct while they're performing so that is actually a lot I'm very you know there's only very few times only if I can't actually fit in the room that we're filming do I just sit back and watch on the monitor and you know yell directions from there Mm. but if I can I am a couple of times uh, the cinematographers had to be like Anna just could you shift a little and I'm like yeah sorry whoops and I'll you know be in there with the actors I just, I love that. I love getting in there with yeah. them and saying, you know, something small like that, you know, there's love in your eyes now. <laughs> there's a lot of that. I've, it's just, it's so much fun to do. But that's a great thing about filmmaking is you can participate in what's happening in the acting as it's happening. Because yay for post, we can just remove it. <laughs> but for filmmaking for me, I'd really, so like takes, like I'd, the editing process really mucks me up. That's why I like theatre because it's like, it's done, it's done, on the mm. night, when it gets performed, it's all done. You know the script's good. It's yeah. the, the editing happens in the script and what will be, will, will be. Will be, yeah. But the one thing I'd hate, just the idea of choosing the takes and, and like, cutting. Mm. And, although you don't cut physically out these days, but, you know, you cut. And you My grandmother actually through. used to cut. No. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. <sighs> all of this comes from, like, you know, personal life. Yeah. And it's funny, I was watching... Um, you know the film Lawrence of Arabia? Yes. With Peter O'Toole? Yes. And I was watching this recent, he did, the, or he died, I think two years ago, mm. but he did this, like, one of his last interviews, and he's talking about Lawrence of Arabia. Yep. And he's talking about the English, uh, David Lean, who directed it. And he's talking about how one day, they're, they're in post, and he says, and they're back in the UK, not, not in Arabia, and he's saying, oh, c- come here, Peter, I, I want to show you something in the editing room. And he goes to... Till. This is what we call a love cut. And so what, what David Lean was showing Peter Till, he was showing the scene where in Lawrence of Arabia, for, your fa- for the fans out there, there's a scene where Lawrence comes to the desert and he's on this big truck and he steps down from the truck. And Peter admitted, when I was doing it, it was quite cumbersome because it's a big truck and there's luggage and packages and I was at the very top of this truck mm. and I had to you know, really stagger my way down this hill. But what David Lean did, he did a love cut where, so you see Peter to start to make the descent. Then they cut to a shot of this uh, British army officer played by Anthony Quayle, Quayle, or Quayle um, who's watching Peter to mm. get down. And then they cut straight back to him off, off the truck. Yep. And, and, he, and he says, oh, how, you know, flowing and beautiful. Yeah. That's called a love cut. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's why. That's uh, the reason why I say that is because that's that's what I like about filmmaking. How you can make things things look seamless. Yeah. No. It's it's absolutely fantastic. It's a big goal I think of editing is to make it look seamless, to make it look like it was done on purpose. Um, because I can tell you, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's literally a situation of that looks weird. Let's throw someone looking. It is actually quite like <laughs> someone watching um, into it just to cut it up a little bit and give it something. Mm. So, yeah. No, I, I actually, I do love that. Filmmaking has so much to it, so much that's part of it, so much that goes into it. I, I Honestly, I love how intricate it gets and how every single person's role really matters so mm. much. Everyone is an integral part of the filmmaking process. Do you have any concerns of the future of making art? I do. I really, really do. A lot of it comes from being a woman um, Mm. in terms of what's happening right now in the arts, in Hollywood, in uh, a lot of these aspects of people's lives and that whole power dynamic, but also in how belittling people are of arts nowadays. I think because we do live in a world where Spotify makes it easy to get a song you want the second you want it, where Netflix means that you can watch a show the second you want to watch it not to disparage any of those I'm subscribed to both of them but um, it does mean that art is coming to people in a very like neatly packaged way Mm. it's it does there's also the whole piracy issue but I won't go into that but it does mean that when it comes to theater or live performances or even films in general television 
it does it's so I, I think it's something that people take so much advantage of and people also don't realize that they're taking for granted because of that I worry that the appreciation for art in general in any way wherever it might come from uh, could sort of dwindle I don't think that's gonna like I hope that's not gonna happen I really genuinely don't think that's something that would really happen with people in so many communities needing arts more than ever now to express themselves to connect with others to communicate themselves but at the same time who's to say mm. do you think as a society and as a as a world um do you think we've become too impatient i think so um i definitely do i know that uh especially oh this one just an example star wars came out two days ago mm. People on Facebook are already like, when's the next one coming out? Fun fact, it's going to take a while. <laughs> but it is, it is that situation with the ability to binge watch. Yeah. For example, and here's just coming from myself here, a show like Riverdale on Netflix. It's a television show that Netflix has bought the rights to. Mm. Netflix gets it the day it airs. So it doesn't come out in clumps of seasons like other shows do. Yeah. So a lot of people like you know will sit there and be like, oh, there's another episode next week. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, I need to you know, binge watch it. And I, especially in a world now where, again, Facebook, great, like social media in general, this way to connect with people, it makes the world a very small place and it's great. But spoilers, spoilers matter a lot to people. Yes. Spoilers ruin things. Um, there's a reason they're called spoilers. They spoil hmm. what's gonna come next. I know, for example. There was a TV show that I loved a while back. I don't remember now what it was. And it was the final episode. Um, and I wasn't going to be able to watch it for a whole two weeks. So I stayed off Facebook, basically. The second I saw the word come up, I'd flee. Like, yeah. Um, I have a friend who constantly posts spoilers. Because she'll watch the show. And while she's watching it, she writes things on Facebook. <laughs> and yeah. it's a show that I really like. Yeah. And she always posts spoilers about it. And I kind of want to be like, could you not? I've just, you know, I just don't see her things on Facebook anymore. So that, that yeah, that idea of spoilers feeds the need to be impatient, feeds that mm. need to grab something new as soon as possible to, one, avoid spoilers, two, avoid feeling bored, which I think is something that people don't really want to do. Like, it's, it's something people just don't mm. face. Mm. To be honest, being bored sometimes, you know, you have that, that situation where you're bored, so you eat probably not the best way to go about it but sometimes i think being bored actually brings some of the best ideas to light hmm. like uh oh what was it a couple of weeks ago myself and some friends were bored and we made up a whole like a new game to play it was something really dumb i can't remember what it is now but we had a lot of fun doing it but that's it's, it's small things like that it's this it creates a disconnect this need to be impatient hmm. not need to be impatient but this impatientness creates a disconnect between people between others uh outside of our own spectrums and art with that in mind sorry because <laughs> um, we are in a place where there is a wonderful window and we're looking onto actually we are looking right now at the perth cultural center you can mm. see the state library no, you can. which is awesome so with that in mind as we look into the future of knowledge and there's a beautiful <laughs> mural of a lady yeah. i think in a no, blue gown yeah. so anna as you know, we we have come to an end. Yes, we have of the of this chapter mm -hmm. of the Chronic Perthian Chronicles. So, with this in mind, Anna, the catch of this series of this series is in the year. So, basically, in the year twenty twenty seven. Okay. So, in ten years' time, I'd like to revisit you in this context. Sure. For a recap, interview, podcast, chapter thingy. Sounds great. So with this, all this in mind, I don't know where we could be in Brazil. We could be in Portugal. We could we could still be in Perth. Who, who, who knows? One never knows. What would you like to plug? Oh, my goodness! In the year twenty twenty seven, hopefully either my new TV show hmm. or my new film, <laughs> um, or my new cooking book. Cooking book? <laughs> yeah, I'd probably write a cookbook. You know. <laughs> well, awesome. Like not just because you know Chrissy Teigen did it. 
She's amazing. She, she's got her, her family recipes in a cookbook. And honestly, I'm yet to find a family with better recipes than mine. Um, my mum, an incredible cook. My grandmother, an incredible cook. Even my dad, when he wants to be, dude can cook mm. when he remembers to feed me. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, but um, no, it would be great to just put all that together. Can you imagine? I'd love that cookbook. Right? Uh, it would be cook, like food from all over the world, from anywhere we've lived, yeah. from everything we've known. And uh, some healthy, some not quite healthy. My grandmother made this cake uh, that I named the Love Snow Cake, the, the cake of love of snow. And it is delicious. Super like moist. I can't stand that <laughs> word unless it's about cake. It's the best cake in the whole wide world. Uh, but yeah, so that would be my recipe book. But um, so yeah, either my recipe book or my, my sorry, my cookbook or um, my next my next project, hopefully, which would be actually I, I love directing TV, so hopefully TV. TV. Well, Anna, here's to 2027. Great.